Hey everyone. All right. Holy cow. It was great to chat with Brennan Klein. It's another Renaissance person here on the pod today. In his research, Brennan attempts to understand how complex systems are able to represent, predict, and intervene on their surroundings across a number of different scales, all in ways that appear to maintain the statistical boundary between them and their environment. That's right. Sounds wild, but we talk about it. It'll be more clear. And he uses this approach to study a range of phenomena from decision-making to experimental design to causation and emergence in networks. Now, Brandon is currently working with professors Alessandro Vespignani and Sam Scarpino on a research examining the teleology of networks or why there appears to be an apparent purpose or goal-directedness to the dynamics and structure of networks. Brennan has an interesting past that we delve into in the podcast. He received a BA in Cognitive Science and Psychology from Swarthmore College back in 2014, where he studied the relationship between perception, action, and cognition. And he received his PhD in Network Science from Northeastern University in 2020. Now, he's a postdoc at the Network Science Institute, and he's also just recently a senior researcher at something called Versus Inc. I, I don't even know what that is. We didn't talk about it. And he's also a data, sci- data for Justice Fellow at the Institute for Study of Policing, Incarceration, and Public Safety. That's right. And where is that? That's at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at a small university you may have heard of. It's called something like Harvard or Harvard or Harvard. Yeah, I think that's it. Now, with those two postdoc advisors, it should come as no surprise that during COVID, Brennan has a number of really important, really interesting COVID-related publications on top of all the fancy stuff I already talked about. In the podcast, we talk about his paper <clears throat> that he wrote with a group of co-authors called Network Comparison and the Within Ensemble Graph Distance. But there's so much more. Also, this is the end, is, <laughs> list is never ending. Finally, Brennan makes art under the pseudonym J.K. Roffling. And he does really interesting art. I urge every single one of you to go online, just pause the podcast for a minute, uh, to the website of J.K. Roffling and check out his art. It's really great. And you know what? I didn't even get to ask him about it. It's a pretty long one, and we had so much exciting stuff going on. Uh, that that we just never got to it. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be for the next one. But a great talk. I hope you enjoy it. But enough jibber-jabber from me. Let's get on with the show. Brennan, welcome to Too Lazy to Read the Paper. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast we're sitting we're sitting now on the second floor of the what what is the name of the building this is the network science institute so the building is part of this um this christian science center in back bay boston where there's to our uh north there is a kind of florentine looking church yes and we're in this massive stone uh 25 floor building um and it's by this what's the architect that did some of the landmark like ooh, those that's a good question all right i can't remember either maybe is it no it's not i can't remember one this. of the phd students here has a has a architecture book um about boston in the 70s and it includes this this building 
But it's the same guy who did the hand, like the what's it called, the Hancock, the the big, the big, uh, the State House. I don't know. All right, this we're gonna have we'll to see. cut all this. <laughs> we're gonna have to cut all this. One seven seven Huntington Ave, downtown yes. Boston. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, welcome, welcome to the podcast. I'm gonna go straight to it and start asking you uh, weirdly personal uh, questions. Well, not that, not that weird, okay. not that personal, but just uh, kind of general, because a big part of the podcast is kind of figuring out people's paths through science. So, my first question is like, where, where, where do you come from? Where did you grow up? So, I born and raised in Tucson, Arizona. So, in the southwest deserty United States. Yeah. Um, my whole childhood it was very uh so i have one brother he's three years older than i am mm -hmm. very close friends and it was very much i was just going to do everything that he did uh yeah and uh, pretend like it was my own idea so he played <laughs> soccer i played soccer he plays tennis i play tennis um and then throughout high school i got i guess much more interested in math um and doing math club and trying to do soccer club at the same time and yeah um eventually when i went to uh, get my undergraduate degree in this small college outside of Philadelphia called Swarthmore College. Um, I was like, I know what I'm going to do for my PhD for my for my bachelor's degree. But hang on, but did like what was the like in high school? This math was that a divergence from your brother? A little was... bit. I, I think I think um, that's sort of where when we started to um, diverge a bit. We were both still. So we were both, he was a, a senior in high school when I was a freshman. And that uh, means we overlapped a little bit with our sporting careers. And so um, once he left high school, uh, I think I focused a little bit less on sports and more on math. And then I took a physics class and I, I just got really interested in mechanics uh, and then really interested in biology and then really interested in chemistry. And it was just this, as the new year came and the new classes came, I was like, Oh, this is awesome. I love this. All right. So it's not, it's not something that came outside of, of like, because my experience was kind of a different one, which is I loved reading books and I mm -hmm. didn't care so much about what, like I kind of had like the, the whatever Danish program I took, did not manage to make physics exciting to me. It was a lot about kind of like heating up some water and you're like, yeah, I don't know. Like this is not, or like uh, let's, let's study friction, but not like the insane parts of friction that are actually exciting, but more like let's drag this block here along with the Newton meter. And I was just like, I don't know, this is not for me. Um, but, but uh, you had, maybe it was better for yeah, you. I, I think there was something about the, uh, I don't know the textbookness of it that drew me to it where, where you could solve for some equation and, and you just have the answer and it's settled and it's neat. And, uh, then you move on to the next one. It's all this very, like, it's like a to-do list kind of science, the way that like freshmen, uh, in Tucson, Arizona physics, uh, learn. And I think that was just, that was probably the extent of it. And then along the way, I was like, Oh, there's probably interesting concepts here. But that's like the worst motivation if you want to be a researcher yeah. because like, you exactly have like zero checklists. Well, so, so in a sense, uh, that is why when, when I was going into, uh, college, I was like, oh, it's actually probably best if I'm a philosophy major, because I think I'm coming to terms with the fact that maybe I just liked math because like you can finish a problem and then move on to the next problem. And mm -hmm. there was not a whole lot of 
uh, in between fascination there. And maybe I just liked reading books cause like I love imagining things. Maybe I like biology cause like it's again, this like this academic test taking mindset. And yeah. Maybe really what I want is just like time to think about interesting ideas and, and navigate my way through there. That's interesting. So, so it, it, there's a lot to unpack with the move to college because if I, I mean, I don't know anything about, uh, well, I know some things, but I don't know everything about the U.S. education system. And, and my, like, is it just, is Swarthmore seems to me to sound like a fancy place that would be hard to get into? Um, competitive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a super good school. It's actually coincidentally, weirdly coincidentally, my year plus or minus three um, uh, at Swarthmore, there's a lot of network science, complex systems, people who have... Um, graduated or since part of the field, um, in a college of 1400 students. Yeah. So, but it, what else, it, but what this meant was also that all this, your kind of love of test taking and uh, like there's a means to an end to, to go and, and yeah, yeah, but it also made you like a super, super good high test scoring high school student who then could go to like a nice place, I guess. Um, I think so. And, and if you asked me at the, at the time, I probably would have said the reason that, that I'm caring so much is that I want to go to a place where I can I don't know, explore lots of interests yeah, like, or have that, a good education. And But so, but you majored, they like your undergrad was a philosophy. My first two weeks uh, was uh, an undergrad philosophy major. Nice. But <laughs> it still it says something about your kind of ambition or where you wanted to go with this. Right. I think so. I, I, and I was, I was, um, so my, my Swarthmore is a very interesting school. It's a, it's a terrific school. The first semester is, um, uh, they encourage you to explore a lot. And so I took a, like a philosophy of morals class and, um, a, um, a quantum physics seminar. And th these are all these like small, uh, number of students in the class. The professors love teaching. Yeah. And so they, everything's very compelling and very personal. Um, and so I, I felt kind of at this knife edge of like, like I'm really interested in physics, not that technically skilled in a way that I feel comfortable with it. I'm really interested in, in philosophy. The same was true um, for the techniques and skills that you need to learn and participate in philosophy. Um, and so then I felt myself kind of uh, getting sucked away from both of those. Um, so I, I kept the motivation and the interest of both of those sides of, of my entry into college um, but then end of semester one, I'm like, okay, this is great. Well, now I'm lost again. Uh, yeah. But, but you said the first two weeks. So did you change your yeah, major? I just or? wasn't that good at reading. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have a major at the time. So, and also the, the, the under, uh, a caveat about Swarthmore again is that you can kind of, uh, major in whatever you want. Um, and it can be very loose or you can double major in things yeah. that are both the things that you invent as a major. And so the, at the end of your time there, you have to take, I think it's something like 20 courses outside of whatever your major is right out of like 32. So courses. it's like, so they want you to just be very broad and get a, as wide a, a net of education as you can get there. They're super serious about the liberal right, arts right. part of the yeah, yeah. bachelor education. So, but, but at the end of it, then what had you studied Now, who, who so, were you? Then? So, so then, um, and I was like, oh, well, I'm interested in brains. Like, that's the thing that connects physics and philosophy. Like, I should just study brains. And then I was like, oh, I'll be a neurologist. I'll go to 
med school and study people with brain damage and see if I can contribute there. Um, that again was a little bit too effortful and didn't have the skills that I think, I don't think I was suited for that. So, so eventually I found, um, an intro to psychology course that I really liked. Um, I found a undergraduate advisor who I really liked. Um, he was a fantastic mentor and he's like still a friend to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just started taking more and more classes about psychology of language. Um, so we did this big, uh, this big seminar about semester long course of like six people who would meet at the professor's house and, uh, basically design an experiment and write a, uh, research paper around it about metaphor and how minds use metaphor to scaffold meaning, um, and how, uh, brains, um, like how they encounter metaphor. So if I'm, if I'm using a metaphor in a sentence, which all of us do constantly, mm -hmm. um, but I slightly tweak, uh, either the metaphor or some, I mix metaphors or there's some sort of, uh, uh, surprising reconstruction of some sentence that you were expecting. You can see the signature of that in say electrical recordings on someone's scalp. Yeah. And this was at the time that we had just, we Swarthmore had just gotten a big EEG machine set up. And so we were thinking about all these fun experiments to run where we would just put people in the EEG and show them different sentence structures. And so this class about language was, was essentially turning into making stimulus stimuli for a large scale study on how brains understand uh, metaphor and mixing metaphors. That's incredible. It reminds me of that. There's some really compelling research about music and this mm -hmm. thing about how music is some like music that's pleasant to listen to is somewhere in between what you expect to happen and what you what surprises you. So if, if everything is surprising, it's, it's terrible. And if everything is predictable, it's boring, but there's a, some interesting sweet spot in there. And it sounds like kind of, you can also see that the brain, if you use a metaphor in an interesting way, the brain is like, ah, like it must be like a related effect or something. Um, it's funny that you should mention that because I feel like we'll actually get back to this in a bit. Um, because this I think was the start of, um, my, I guess like broader academic or, uh, scholarly, I guess, ideology maybe in that, um, it got me thinking really early on about the concept of surprise mm -hmm. and its utility in basically the more you think about it, like all sorts of information processing. Um, I'll put a bookmark there for a sec. Um, because the rest of my psychology experience at Swarthmore was doing visual perception. So my, yeah. my supervisor was, um, it still is a psychophysicist, which is essentially looks at, um, in a broad sense, like information processing, especially visually, um, through perceptual experiments. Yep. So what we would do, and this is, uh, uh, I, so, uh, fast forward a couple of months, I had since started to major officially in psychology And then there was this, this rule that you said you have to take 20 classes outside your major, but there was a little asterisk, which says, but if you double major, like all bets are off. And so I was like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll <laughs> double major in psychology and cognitive science, which yeah. are like arguably uh, Venn diagram, very yeah. high overlap mm -hmm. fields. 
But what that let me do was take a lot of research courses. Um, so doing experiments and, and analyses really early on in, in, uh, in college. And then also a lot of like these, these seminars with four people where you just go and discuss. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you basically fast tracked totally out of the results are right there <laughs> in the book into the the great world of kind of nothing like we're 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 learning as we go we have to figure out everything i was like if there is an experiment i want to design it <laughs> yeah that's incredible that's really really interesting and i and i know a little bit about this kind of visual perception and it's the kind of the most physicsy part of psychology because there are like the visual system is actually really, really well understood. Part of the like what we like the part of psychology we understand the best. I think I don't like I'm. This, I, I think I might be mansplaining to you now, but uh, also to the audience just to open it up. And and there are like equations in there, right? Yeah, um, it, it is. <laughs> uh, I mean, for a number of reasons, it kind of makes sense that this is the one that um, sort of took psychologists, neuroscientists by storm, once we started to figure out, um, patterns in, in early experiments where we're like, Oh, this is, uh, uh, I, I'm also going to, um, no, no, the, no but it, the, it was uh, more that you were an expert I, of this and I had like seen a talk once and now I was explaining to everyone how it worked. That was, just, <laughs> I felt you should explain it to the listener because I don't think this is common knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could give it a, a full treatment, it, it, but, but no, from no, what no. I understand that essentially the, um, I mean, there's an intuitive draw, which is we, most, uh, people who are studying the brain, the mind, uh, see things and there's these just very salient, uh, things that you can map onto the experience that me as a researcher, uh, encounters and the things that I can measure by a number of different ways. One of them being, um, like by, by just putting a sensor in the part of the visual system that is detecting certain types of let's say edges of objects where what where the boundary of one thing is and where it lets off um color um movement and that actually as a as a tool to bootstrap other types of of neuroscience was like a very valuable um i guess initial and it continues to be a very valuable experimental paradigm so all that is to say what i ended up doing um at swarthmore was i would study how people perceive hills to be uh or how steep people perceive hills to be which in the field of psychophysics was like a niche and very controversial uh field where you could go back and forth between research groups who say well people so so the the background is people overestimate the slope of a hill when they're standing at the bottom of it mm -hmm. so if you're if you're um if you can imagine uh those san francisco streets that all they're super steep. Um, you're riding a motorcycle down it and you stop and you flip over the handlebars. How, if you were to put a degree angle on that hill, how steep do you think it would be? Mm -hmm. And the, what, what, what do you think? I don't, so now you just told like me this is people, 90, this is zero. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now you, you already told me people overestimate. Yeah, yeah. So probably I'm going to overestimate anyway, but I would say like, if you go, let's say 10 meters forward, maybe you go three, four meters up. So it's like three and a half percent. No more oh, percent. Oh, like, oh, oh like, like, okay. Yeah. 
I'm not you, good with trigonometry. Oh, you, you want you want like the angle? I want the angle. Oh, geez. <laughs> so now, but that's like very low, right? Like yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's like like this. Yeah. So so I mean I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I Anyways, can't uh, I was wh- just thinking about like how many like the way that I would try and de-bias myself was that I would think if I go a hundred meters forward or ten meters right. forward, how yeah. So let's say ten, you can gauge that how how much elevation would I gain, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so 45 degrees would mean that if I went 10 meters forward, I would go 10 10 meters meters up. up. And so if I go 5 meters up, it would then be half of 45. But probably you don't even do that. So let's say that you go... Yeah, I don't, I'll say I don't you're think. very close because so usually what people would say because th- those. Um, but I mean, if you had just asked me without prepping me, I yeah, would have yeah. gotten it. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> a common answer is like that's 45 degrees. It has yeah. to be because it's so steep. It's, um, but yeah, but no, I think no way the steepest that. one in San Francisco is something like 16 degrees. Yeah, and the steepest ones that humans can like traverse up is a is much lower than one might expect. Um, but if you put a backpack, a heavy backpack on someone at the bottom of the hill, oh, nice! there was this, um, there was this group that found, oh, well, they're going to overestimate it even more. Or if you give people, uh, uh, a sugary beverage, like a, a Coke before they, before they, um, go up the hill, uh, or before they, before they judge the, the steepness of it, they'll underestimate it because, and then this is a little bit what we as a research group at Swarthmore college, we're trying to push back against um, the explanation was, well, they have more energy, so they'll think it's less steep. So they'll report that it's less steep. And so there was a whole suite of studies that we ended up doing where we tried to like pick apart the experimental design. And so we say, okay, we'll replicate the backpack result. But what we're going to do is because I mean, if you imagine you're an 18 year old, in a psych study at let's say the university of Virginia, some researcher says, here's a heavy backpack. Wear this. How steep do you think this hill is? I would wager that there is some leakage of the hypothesis of the experimenter into the mind of the participant. And so what, um, what we ended up doing was, or this, this is before my time at Swarthmore, but what, um, one follow-up study to that was, well, what if you, um, give people a heavy backpack that's it. You tell them to, to estimate the slope of the hill. We replicate that finding. What if you say, put wires in it and you say like, it's got technical equipment for the experiment that we need. So now there's not this demand characteristic of saying, I think you know what I want you to say. And I'm subtly yeah, yeah, yeah. trying to give you that. Um, the effect disappears. So people will still overestimate the hill, just not as much. Nice. With the Coke versus let's say diet Coke. Um, we, ran, we did that same study where we said, okay, stand at the bottom of this hill, drink some Coke, Yep, drink some Diet Coke. The experimental condition would say, uh, or the, the previous research would say, the people who have Coke are going to not overestimate as much um, because they have the energy to go up the hill. Um, what we did is we just asked like the participants at the end, did you know which, do you know like what beverage you drank? Because we didn't tell them. And something like ninety percent of the people could pick out if it was sugary Coke or not sugary Diet Coke, and so I was, as an experimenter, brought up in this somewhat critical, but like trying to be creative about 
thinking about experimental design in a way that um, more, I guess, properly isolates the research in question so that you can actually like contribute yeah. more deeply to science. Yeah. And I can totally see how the, the, the kind of existing work was tapping into this embodied cognition exactly. and like yeah. where like the, your state of mind impacts how you see the world mm -hmm. and it seems plausible. But in fact, when you think about it, I mean, what are the processes that like, how, how does a backpack impact your, <laughs> your judgment? It's like, it's, it's not clear at all, but it's much more likely that by someone saying like, eh, let's find this. We have this weirdly heavy backpack. Uh, now let, let me ask you some uh, questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that might be the the reason for something. So 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 you're kind of, I guess if we're we're taking out like a meta comment on this, you're already really early on, kind of thinking very critically about experimental design and so on. So you you come out double degree uh, neuroscience psychology. Then we we find you here at the Network Science Institute. So have, what happened? Um. So a lot happened. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and you can use however much of this uh, you see fit. Um, but the, so. No, no, but I want to say there are no cuts to this podcast. We're recording. Okay. <laughs> We're recording going everything. Yeah, yeah. So, so, right. and so, I think it's interesting. So, and I think uh, it's relevant also for, because what is it? I mean, in a way I'm interested in what makes a scientist, mm -hmm. right? Like what, like part of the reason we're having this conversation is because we're all different. We all come with a different history. And I, and I think that what kind of shapes us is not necessarily like, yeah, it can be many different things, right? It can be experiences you had when you were a kid. It can right. be, so, so I think it's really interesting to kind of say, well, how is, like, how do you ask good questions? How do you ask the right questions? And I think you're giving us like a super interesting example of, how does a a young mind get like from and and like you you kind of you said it up beautifully right because you're kind of like a you're starting out in high school as someone who's like I need to check off some lists so that I can get into a good college but then when you could get into a good college what somehow happens is that you're totally ready to start thinking in a completely new way and not just asking questions but also questioning even the process of how the questions are asked. So it's, it's super nice. The, the, throughout all this, I think one thing um, that I've observed of myself is that I'm basically in indecision for a very long time until suddenly I'm not, and it just snaps and I'm like, Oh yeah. I'll, like I applied to one uh, college for my undergrad. I applied to one PhD program. Um, uh, so it's very like, I'm not going to know. I'm not going to know. And then suddenly the, the scorpion tail, uh, drops down <laughs> strikes. Um, so the, the, how I found myself, uh, here is a long story again, Yeah, let's uh, do it. but let's do it. So my junior year, this was amid like the metaphor stuff, looking at, um, looking at different visual perception studies. Um, I was starting to feel like really in my groove with psychology. Um, I also, it, uh, in a way I could, I, started to understand how to participate in the field. So I'm like, Oh, well, well I could go get a PhD in this cause I want to do research. I can go like, and I, I have examples in my life of people who uh, can help like mold me in, 
into the way that I would need to like look attractive to a PhD program, for example. Um, at the same time, I still really like playing soccer. Um, and there's one weird day where I had this horrible like brain injury playing soccer, um, wow. October, my, my junior year. Um, and it went from being very like, uh, like shocking at first to just like, or not, not shock. It, it, it was like a, a couple days of like, Oh, this is like really weird. And then it kept, um, getting worse and worse. And so, holy shit. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I yeah, don't yeah. do any research for this podcast. So yeah. I had no, I had no, 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 no. It, it's, it's, um, I mean, it ties into a lot of things too. So yeah, it ties yeah. into like the art, it ties into yeah. the networks. Wild. Um, and so the, the, a shorter version of, of that story is that I, I ended up leaving college for about six months. Um, and then coming back mm-hmm. after I had like learned how to do thought and memory again. But hang on, but you like, it's not like, this is not about your, um, junior year brain injury, but just, so basically like you, you like bumped your head against another player or the ball or whatever. You got some like non-trivial brain injury that, yeah where like it got progressively worse, worse and you couldn't like speak or what happened? So, um, I could speak. Um, I couldn't, uh, so, uh, yeah, there's, so the day of the event, I had a, like a collision with another player. I kept playing in the game because it was just kind of groggy. And then that night I started getting weird, like perceptual phenomena. So I would start to smell like, uh, like, urine in everywhere and i would i yeah. would start to like i would not be able to look at um or would only be able to look at like edges of of uh of rooms so like where the walls touch mm-hmm. um or edges of tables um and then more and more it became i couldn't like just i couldn't put the words on the page together in a sentence if i was thinking about the words but if i kind of let my eyes pass over it i might be able to extract some meaning from a text. So, so there was a disconnect between a lot of vision um, or a lot of just sensory things and how like I could access that or not. And so that essentially meant like there was a, a month or so of not being able to do reading. Yeah. Not because it, it, it was like scary. a concentration thing, but it was just because I couldn't see the words or I couldn't, I couldn't feel yeah. the words that I was seeing. But did someone meet you and tell you like, this is this, it's going to be fine. Or yeah. like what happened? Um, or were they like, yeah, we got no idea. Yeah. It, it was, it was some of that. It was a lot of just like, like uh, a lot of testing again too. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, what about like repeat back this string of seven numbers? To yeah. Me. Yeah. Um, but my, my mom uh, was in upstate New York at the time and she like drove down through a storm and was just like, Hey, we're going, <laughs> we're leaving now. Uh, yeah. All and right. so there was like a, uh, but, but we talked to a neurologist in Pennsylvania and then I went to Arizona for a couple months. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's yeah. not like, we don't have to, uh, get into this because we want to talk about the science, but it must have, I mean, my, my guess is that this must have also motivated you even more to like, because it's scary as shit like, yeah, yeah. Uh, to experience something like this. And this reminds you of the brevity of life. It reminds you of the importance of doing meaningful things, all that stuff. So it must have also kind of um, made you even more focused on pursuing something meaningful and something the big, maybe. 
Like I'm just guessing. Um, so, so I think the recovery process definitely that yeah, was sure, that sure. was it. Where where it was, um, because there's a lot of things that you try and they just don't work for recovery, or you don't notice them doing anything. And so, like I would latch on to some like trick that I was doing that would that would like mean I could remember something or that I could read better. And so a lot of that was this, like the, the spotlight is turned inward and you're just like, okay, well, what is my brain doing? And why yeah. is it that, that like, if I try to store a memory like this deliberately, that's more effective than just like letting life just, uh, just do trying to like assume that I'll just remember things normally. Like mm-hmm. what, what exactly is going on? And, and a lot of this is like, uh, this is starting to get uh, networky because I, I was just thinking about pathways and, and just interrupted like, neural processes and like, yeah. what could, what sort of skirts these interruptions and what clever routes could you take to try to, to uh, like, do perception better and do sensation better. Mm-hmm. Um, the key thing uh, I think that came out of this, well, not that came out of this, the key thing for recovery was that uh, I just, that, they ended up um, putting me on this Alzheimer's medication, mm-hmm. which I was like, huh, I don't want that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and, and, and so this is at a point where I could, I could start to like, I, I was like, th- I mean, throughout, I knew who I was. I knew what I was interested in. I, I just, there was a lot of access issues with like my facility, my faculties that I couldn't, um, I, I wasn't skilled at. But I was like, oh, this is like a cholinergic reuptake inhibitor. Like, oh, I wonder what that's like doing t- for my like attentional issues or like my mm-hmm. sensation or something. And so trying to embody like what exactly was happening, like as a result of this thing that they are treating in a similar way that they've been treating like my grandma, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think just like became this like academic not academic problem but just like this curiosity thing where i'm yeah. like what's happening to my brain i'm noticing i'm getting better um maybe i'll read a book i read the phantom toll booth um to to as like a first first pass back and then i just got uh i, I think it, the 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 um it, it seems silly to say like i didn't really have a work ethic before but mm-hmm. i don't think i actually understood the the input output relationship of like, you can try very, very hard at something. And if you do that, you will get better at it. Mm-hmm. And that's the, like the first rule of being a human. Everyone knows this, but I, I like, and I think if you asked me when I was 19 years old, I would be like, yeah, if you practice, you'll improve at things. But I don't actually think it clicks in a way that um, is as like immediately tangible as when I was just recovering from a, freak accident yeah so so this kind of like what it also so it made you even more interested in the networks of the brain but it also made you acutely aware of this thing that if you wanted to go somewhere there was kind of like a clear (laughs) like a clear way of getting there to basically say i want to focus on this i want to do these things and i i do think i i i mean like a like a crazy sidebar is that actually I think the American way is exactly that if you work at stuff, you get better at it. And actually I think like in the in the tradition that I grew up in, there's this kind of uh, like almost celebration of the genius. So mm-hmm. that like the 
When I was in high school, like the coolest thing you could do was to be super good at everything, but not do any work. Because that means like there was this idea that there was somehow like an other world in this that someone who's really brilliant doesn't need to do all the reading. Like they can invent everything from first principles and they're just, they're just kind of brilliant <laughs> direct. Like, do you know what I mean? And, and I think that that's a very kind of damaging thing to have as an ideal because, it, <laughs> because that's exactly not like that's, it's not helpful. And in fact, it blocks. And I, I remember like people saying stuff like, yeah, that person is really good, but they also like study all the time. So like, <laughs> but, you know, like, so it doesn't, <laughs> so it doesn't count, you know, like, because to be really awesome, you had to yeah, do yeah. really well and not do anything. And I think, and I think that if life has taught me anything, it's exactly the, the same lessons that, that you have learned that, yeah, like if you want to be excellent, there's it, you, you sit down. You can just keep trying. Yeah. <laughs> so now, it might not work for like all skills, but, but, no. but there, but there, um, but I guess, but I guess you must also have been driven a little bit about like the reason for this whole detour is you must also have had some of this, like, like the lone genius idea or that perception of learning maybe or no, I, I think that's probably, um, yeah, just hearing you describe like a, a Danish upbringing versus, I think there's some of that in, is it Danish? Yeah, 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 that's you do. Okay. yeah. If you had said Dutch, I would have been uh, that's a lot of common. <laughs> but I don't yeah. even think it's very Danish. I think it's well. I think it's. I feel it's like like there's like, some of that in the U.S. too. I, I, like there's, like it's just so much cooler to not have to do any work and still be like, I don't know. I, or, it, it, it is. It is not to me, but as a like seventeen year old. Yeah. Um, anyway, but yeah. so so when we're on the other side of this thing, you come back come back i get really into um making structures out of popsicle sticks um just to basically do no thought for a while and so uh-huh. you can imagine like these little six inch wood uh arts and crafts toys that you just glue on top of each other in interesting patterns yeah there's another one of those things where it's like you can make a beautiful thing and just to repeat the same rule over and over add slight variation yeah. And you start to get this amazing structure. It'll just take six hours. And so the, the, it was just this, like this, this months long experience and just learning like what inputs, like create what outputs basically, like what effort will create these skills or relearn this ability or create this art. But and was the, it more of the cellular, I'm sorry, but I, I cellular automata kind of, process or did you also just freeform it was, it was more it was more cellular cellular automata right, i'm not yeah. erected <laughs> um but but uh so that next semester when i came back um i think i started thinking about this much more in a uh, critique of cognitive science way where i was like we just don't have the tools to think about these networks and it's so clear that these things are so important for like experience yeah. and brains and also maybe society. And it seems like they just keep popping up everywhere. Um, and then I went on youtube.com and I was like, who is this Laszlo Barabasi guy? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I, I, that spring there was a conference at the media lab. And I, like, what year is this now? I think this was 2012 or 2013. It was, it was the media lab, like links conference or something. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I begged my advisor. I was like, Hey, this isn't like anything that I do, but can you just like, can I have money? Can I go? Yeah. He was like, yeah, this is weird, but like, sure. Um, and so I came to Boston for a couple of days. Um, and it was just like, it was like, just, it wasn't any intro talks. It was just people talking about the network science research, which I was not suited to understand, but I was just on the, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, this is the coolest thing. Um, that's and then I came back and it ruined my whole interest in psychology. I was like, there's no <laughs> purpose for me to do this. I want to do network science. Did you know network science is a science? I want to do that. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. I mean, I like that experience of being somewhere and thinking this is the coolest. Yeah. There's like, not everyone gets that. And it's, it's insane, right? It's the best. Cherish it. I love it. So like it, that, that feeling of just, you are a kid everything is candy and it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so then, uh, at the same time I was like, I should start a startup. This is a fun <laughs> little left turn in, in my life. Uh, uh, but it was a startup where I was like, it, it, you know, you're exposed to network science for the first time and you are dispositionally someone who just wants to connect everything. And so this is this hammer nail kind of, perfect fit. Um, and so I'm like, Oh, like I should make an app and we can do networks. And there's, there's this, mm-hmm. we could do gift cards and, and an economy with the network. And, but I hang on, what's the app? Oh, it's called wallet with an I. Good. So Good name. Quick pitch. Um, but it's, a. Uh, so I had this idea that like, if you were just on this app that gave you free gift cards to places, um, but the only way that you could actually like wall put put the gift card in your wallet like your digital wallet is if you wall it like you put it up on your wall and so people will follow you because of what will be what your wall has like what offerings like you can give to your followers and so if i know your interests in food i might follow you and so if you post something that i like i'll also wall it and the people who follow me will um so it's it's almost like if I can re-pitch it back to you, it's kind of like sports sponsorships, but crowdsourced. Do you know what I mean? Like the, that you you have like you have some kind of like person that people pay attention to for some reason, and then you'd be like, okay, Nike is like, I'm gonna give some free clothes to this person and some money because when other right, people right. see this this night this sports person. Do you know what I mean? That, that's a much better pitch. Cause I mean, like but, as a, but, as a business model of, of that, it's like a, but it, but this is from the bottom up. So you can kind of yeah, bootstrap yeah. it. You don't have to first become, uh, like win Wimbledon and well, yeah. you can get it sooner than that. But, um, but yeah. Um, so, and it's nice, but I like the wall. It yeah, this yeah. is good. And then I was, I was all into the like, Oh yeah, we have a cool logo and it's gotta look good. <laughs> um, and so with my dear friend who's still friend to this day, um, I entered a business plan competition, ended up winning it. And I was like, I'm going to move to Palo Alto. There you go. And start a startup in a basement. So you were almost a tech bro. I was almost, <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. Um, but what, uh, my friend Morgan and I moved to a basement in Palo Alto, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of very fun connections that are about to come up too. Uh, so I'm going to tell you about how my startup failed, but there's, uh, so it was clear early on that 
the work, the labor that you need to do to start a company is uh, not what I was interested in doing. I didn't want to like go around and pitch to investors and I couldn't code. And really at the end of the day, it's like, well, what do you do here? And I was like, well, I think there's a very interesting like theoretical object in this, in a world where this app was successful and people basically shared these like signals of consumer preference um, with a network that you could imagine optimal diffusion through or optimal seeding. Um, and that like, if I, if there's a, a, a Chipotle gift card yeah. on my wall and a subway gift card, they are, I guess, as, fast food restaurants like structurally very similar in that like it's a place that you go and you tell the person behind the counter each yeah. subsequent ingredient that you want, but they are different genres of food. And so they wouldn't be classed in the same. Yeah. Like, uh, so basically like you would be great for the company like six years out as a data scientist, but until then, yeah, like, yeah, not so yeah. much. <laughs> no, and, and that there's, there's probably other, um, other sort of latent similarities between, yeah. No, no, there would be products, there's, and, and there's, and it's, it's all in this, like, and I kept, I would like draw it out on whiteboards. Um, and then, uh, at the time I was living in the basement in Palo Alto. Um, one of the upstairs, uh, house members was the, is still the son of Brian Arthur, who is a, um, big complexity economist. Um, in fact, one of the probably um, uh, largely credited with like spurring that complexity economics mm -hmm. revolution. Um, and so his son Ronan was like, Brennan, you know, the way you're talking about networks kind of seems like you might enjoy chatting with my dad. I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> fun. Um, and so he's like, actually he's, he's coming back from a, a trip um, and someone needs to drive him from the airport home. And I was like, that's great. I'm going to try. I'm going to get stuck in San Francisco traffic with Brian Arthur. Um, and so I do. And, and it, 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 he's, he's very kind and it's very clear that I am a uh, child who is so excited about this thing. And he's like, uh, and he, he is like generous and willing to like go down little idea paths with me and it's a long drive. And so we're just like talking about complex systems Um and I think he was the one who was like, you should probably like think about getting educated in this because um, it's clear that you have this passion for network science and, and, um, and there are these online courses that you can take from the Santa Fe Institute to get a little bit more background. Cause at this point it was all just like, I have this hunch and I'm not great at starting a startup and those things yeah, together yeah, yeah. give me a lot of time to, to think about these things. Um, and at the same time, Northeastern was in its first year of the network science PhD program. So, mm -hmm. so at the time I would be applying to the second cohort of it. Um, and so I was like, I'm not fully sure what I'll do if, cause it's clear. I don't want to do this startup. I like thinking about the startup. I do not like doing the startup. Uh, I want, uh, to do network science. I don't know what's going to happen if I don't get into Northeastern, but Fingers crossed. Um, and then I do get into Northeastern. Uh, I moved to Boston. The then, end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. And so, and so the, 
the 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 startup is no more, or it didn't uh, take yeah. off, or um, it's no more. I think it, I, I think the spirit of it uh, lives on um, because it, it is. It is. I think it is a really nice idea, and this idea that that because it like just meditating on it for a moment, like the the. Like this idea that if you are billed as a food snob, for example, you wouldn't put any gift card right. up on your wall. Right. And so it, there's this interesting dynamic of saying in the beginning, you would just want to get like whatever gift cards people will give you. But then you can, you have to find like a way of kind of bootstrapping yourself out of <laughs> nothingness exactly, yeah. into, into a brand And then that brand can kind of slowly give you more and more uh, clout or whatever. And then you can begin to say no. <laughs> and basically, this is what people do in any social. It's like a explicit social capital or something like, like this that, that, you're, that you're doing, but you're pricing it. Right. So I I think and, it's a, and a like built idea. into like, it like, like the, the, the only, like it's not I mean now like, like a fun every, now uh, people are just going to steal it yeah. but <laughs> um, I think the domain ran out so uh, anything yeah but but the um, the the hypothesis underneath it all is like there is a structure there there's like a structure of how we organize our beliefs and our preferences and our like this is in an economic space but it's also you can imagine it with like social preferences or or if there were a a easy way to elicit like earnest responses from people such that the data that they generate actually can elucidate that hidden structure that relates a lot of things that we don't see, but we know is kind of there. Um, that's a really good tool for data generation. Yeah. But it's, <clears throat> but it's not just an existing structure. I think that we're like the structure also somehow piggybacks on us Like I think right, that I totally, like, yeah. like I think that if let's say that I was in this and I had the time and energy to try and succeed in this universe that you wanted to create, I think also you know like you could you could plausibly imagine that given some perturbations of the original state, it the the, the drive to win could bring me in like many different directions in a way. Do you know what I mean? It, it, and it gets at a sense that it, uh, we. Have we each have like a hypothesis about how the space looks, and therefore we can we can guess how to navigate it, given what we think. Like, if I want to be like the central node in food snob uh, subgraph of this large uh, like observed preference consumer network, then I kind of have some like okay, well I, I should share more of these ones because I have some hypothesis about how close that would get me to my like goal of where I want to be situated in this network. Um, And then I get feedback about whether or not I'm getting closer to that. And it's all yeah. this very subtle feedback. And so I'm making lots of inferences. I have a very noisy model of this, of this world, but suddenly, but, but through repeated action, I get some sort of carving out of, of where I fit in there. In a sense, it's like, um, it's like Twitter, but with a finite set of tweets. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I still think that would be good for Twitter. Just like, like tweet well, do good tweets. Uh, but do you or, know what I mean? That, yeah. but it's also like this thing that, that like whatever gift card is like, is like, that's one tweet. That's one message right. you can anyway. All right. So 
I'm just uh, we're we're going uh, long on time, but I think it's super interesting. So, um, but we need we need to um, we need to get uh, more current. I'm losing uh, because of all your awesome stories. I'm I'm losing. Uh, <laughs> so the losing network comparison of, and the within ensemble. No, no, no. But we want to. <laughs> I want to. I want to just get to kind of the topic of your PhD thesis because part mm. of like yeah, I love it. I think like this idea of the. So I was thinking about it uh, today. So so the I cannot I can't remember the precise title. You you I'm sure you do, but it's something about the teleology of. Or teleology. I don't know how you say it in English. I say teleology. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> it seems like it, that's what it should be called. But and and this is just a fancy way of saying like the goals or the aims of networks. This idea that a network has a place that it wants to go, and I find it super interesting. And I'll just pitch like my thoughts because I don't know like about what Please, you actually yeah. wrote about. But my thoughts were that. For some networks where there's kind of feedback on the level of the entire network, like the brain, then it makes a ton of sense to think about a goal-oriented nature of the of a network, right? That there's a lot of feedback coming into the brain network, and that is what perhaps can drive this, that it incorporates more and more module and it gets very big or whatever. But then when I think about social systems let's say like a group of uh, primates living together or something like this, I see the individual level uh, feedback being very strong in terms of social behavior, but the external input to a social system of primates living out in the jungle is much more coarse-grained, much less direct, and therefore like I would assume less teleology in those kinds of systems. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that in terms of a kind of a goal-orientedness for networks, for me, it would depend a lot on the input on the big system. And, and the inputs on the big system, like, so if you have strong inputs, then the network might converge toward responding to those. Because in a way, it's, again, like information processing, blah, 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 and that's part of what's happening. And because it would re- then the re- network re- responding in a certain way could affect the outcomes of that, that thing. But anyway, so, so those were like my, my thoughts, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like on the very high level, uh, it, it, without they, knowing they, they make a lot of sense. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to tackle them um, in an order because, because I, I think, but the, maybe the, you should just like set up. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're starting in this program, of course, like in the beginning, you just take some classes or whatever, but at some right. point you'd like to formulate this, thesis and and like i said i don't know anything other than the title of it which i loved yeah. <laughs> so maybe you should tell us about like how so, you got so there I'll, I'll work backwards a bit from and then from we the, can because the 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 teleology of networks is actually um a a grant that i got for my postdoc um but it was going to be my whole like for years in like my phd thesis? it was going to be my phd thesis but i got the or we uh, with alessandro vespignani and sam scarpino we got this grant from the templeton foundation to study this and so I was like, crap, I can't do this for my thesis. I have to like make a different thesis. So, okay. so my, my thesis ended up being largely about, or it ended up being titled comparing, constructing and reconstructing networks. Right. Um, and I apologize for the poor it, research. It, but, I mean, I think I, there's probably like public information still. That's like my thesis is about the teleology. I think, I, I mean, I think I found it on somewhere yeah, yeah. I'm um, looking for it. Which, it, um, 
to this day, I would argue that's still, it was still the motivation of my thesis. It was still, it's still my motivation now. Um, the, the backstory of it can go all the way back to um, Swarthmore looking at metaphor um, in particular. And there's someone I haven't mentioned this whole time is um, one of my dearest friends on earth. His name is Connor Hines. He's a PhD student in, in uh, Constance with Ian cousin right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he and I spent basically years trying to like ask questions about how the brain encounters surprise, what surprise is used for, uh, like, is it a, how we can even, uh, address this question formally. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's this, this really neat framework, um, that's in the past seven, eight, 10 years picked up quite a bit of both attention, criticism, uh, research. Uh, that's this, this idea that if you're, this is going to start abstract, but it'll, we'll get to teleology eventually. Um, if you imagine a thing, uh, uh, everything that's not that thing is not that thing. So that you can imagine a little, a little amoeba that has a boundary between it and not it. Mm-hmm. And this um, framework that Connor and I had really, that sort of took us by storm and then we, we got obsessed with it and it still influences our work directly today um, is just a formalism for describing action uh, in the service of preserving the boundary between the thing and not that thing. So if you think of uh, like an amoeba swimming around in some noisy environment, mm-hmm. um, if I, if, a, if, a, <clears throat> if there's debris in that environment, I might rip my cell membrane and then all my guts will spill out and, mm-hmm. and I am no longer the thing separate from not that thing. So my, my statistical or my physical boundary that uh, encapsulates me dissipates yep i want to avoid that and so if you think to yourself how would i avoid that what like what do you need to actually do well in a sense um you need to move when you see something incoming Mm -hmm. um but also uh, the secret cheat code is that if you could make good predictions about when something is going to be incoming and when something might dislodge you from this nice um statistical boundary that you hold between yourself and your environment. Um, if you have some model that generates predictions about the way that like, or some, some statistical regularities in your environment such that you can anticipate that and use action to, um, in a sense, avoid that. But can I just say to me, it would be good if you had like repeated (laughs) interact, like if, if like one mistake, cause dissipation then i would be like i wouldn't be able to learn anything right you know what i mean right so so i guess that's part of the just to make sure that i understand how it's described um yeah so 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 the the toy example of of the dissipation i think is is certainly extreme but but the but the core bits of it is through acting on the world you're basically saying i uh can't control much other than my own internal states. So yeah. I want to make sure my internal states are not getting surprising inputs from their environment yep. that are going to shock me out of some, yeah. some nice cozy. Uh, but it's, the, the reason I'm asking these questions is because what this reminds me of is like the kind of Judea Pearl yeah, causality yeah. do operator. 
which also serves a kind of related analogous purpose, right? Which is in classical statistics, we don't have this do operator, but it's again about embodiment and it's about being able to experiment on your environment to get feedback that basic will give you ideas about causality. Right. So anyway, so, th- that's, I mean, that, that's why that I'm asking that it question. Is, it is, I think, central to this. And, and there's some, I guess, recent academic discussion about whether this is the proper formalism to use. But this notion of this, let's say, Markov blanket, which is just, if you imagine a set of states, there are certain states that are uh, conditionally independent from other states, mm-hmm. uh, given the boundary between those internal states and the external states. So, yes. so the, the, there's this, there are certain states that are, that occupy this sort of privileged boundary role mm-hmm. that insulates a set of other states from an ex- set of external states. And so what, all this is basically saying in the amoeba example, in the, in, in us is that we manage to maintain ourselves um, via some sort of statistical boundary between this external world, which we can't control. Um, but we can make predictions about what our actions will do to perturb the external world, which will in turn uh, perturb our sensory stage, which will in turn perturb how we our hypotheses yeah, yeah. about the world. And so it, it's this, it's um, a very neat formalism for mm-hmm. thinking about just abstractly, what does it mean to be a thing and how do things persist? And you might, uh, it's maybe subtle, but um, uh, the very notion of preserving a statistical boundary is you are giving this little this little organism some uh, basic form of like a goal? Yeah. It the 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 agency here is maybe put on it by us, but it's still a useful construct for mm-hmm. modeling this organism. Which is we can say I'm going to put uh, uh, an agency hat on this on this, and in doing so it's actually quite useful for me in modeling it because what I can do is I can write a generative model of that. What I think this organism encounters with the world, how it makes predictions, how it, how that model will inform actions and how learning can actually happen there. Yep. Um, I'm beginning to see. And so it it puts (laughs) us into this, into this, uh, and, and it's, um, again, coming from a psychology, cognitive science background, the, the, where this is situated in neuroscience actually uh, spoke to us quite a bit. Mm-hmm. What we had wanted to do for years was we're like, this is just like we, complex systems should like be this. Like, why is, why is no one yelling about this? And it turns out people were, and we just, it took a while to, to um, connect with a lot of them. But what Connor and I did in 2018 was we were like, we should try to just put these ideas out there and see, and see if, if we can start some discussion or start some collaborations. And so at the conference on complex systems in, in Thessaloniki that year, we had this uh, satellite workshop that we organized where we brought together different complex systems, thinkers, um, different people from this, from this uh, free energy minimization, active inference world, mm-hmm. put them in a room together in Greece and said, <laughs> you, you know each other, please continue. Yeah. Um, nice. And, and since then, it, it's very much been this, for at least Connor and I, it's been this um, interesting maneuvering about how to um, how to sort of sit in both worlds, sit in a complex systems world with, with all of its um, 
history and techniques and methods and formalism and how to sit in this, um, uh, this other theoretical sort of neurosciencey world. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about, uh, the, so, so, so this, this was swirling around for, for years, um, during my PhD, it eventually turned into, I think there's a pretty interesting way to tie a network science to these ideas of, of avoiding surprise, these ideas of like preservation of, of, of self, of boundary, um, this maximizing evidence for your own model of the world via actions that you can give onto the world, which will then feed back into, into your, um, sensory states. I think there is a network science here. And I think like yeah. there, I think we should, uh, I, and so I, I wrote a couple of, uh, ideas about how to maybe formalize this and how to, um, like what, what would even a project look like? Um, and I was working with, with Alex Espignani and Sam Scarpino on this at the time. And we were thinking like, let's, we should just submit this as a grant. Cause also this is a, um, there's this foundation that is, um, that ha- explicitly has a funding call out that's saying we're really interested in pursuing projects that touch on this science of purpose. In particular, we're looking at how you can define <laughs> like uh, goal directed behavior and complex systems and nice. all these things where I'm like, did, did I write this? Like, this is a- pretty nice. And so it, it, and every step along the way, like we did an initial funding inquiry and they were like, you should do a full proposal. And it kept coming back with like, they liked it a lot. Um, and ultimately that got funded to the point that that's what I'm, that's my current funding source now. And, and we're building out this, this team of like, of, um, researchers who I think like a couple of years ago when I was applying for the grant, I didn't think that they would exist. These people that exist at this, interest in network science, interest in information theory, interest in dynamical systems. Um, but somehow there are those people and it is like a joy to discuss projects with them. A quick pivot from, from, uh, <laughs> that's good. Uh, from teleology because on the network side of things, if you're saying that a network has a goal or networks have goals or goal directedness, like a lot of that is, um, nice in terms of anthropomorphizing an explanation. If you're say explaining something to a colleague or a child or like it makes things easier to imagine goal directedness in things. You're like, this network Mm -hmm. wants to grow this way, uh, like directly proportional to the degree of the nodes in the network or something like that. That's its goal. Um, but as we discussed earlier, uh, as you, uh, as you're practicing something, as you're doing repeated actions, or as you're trying to get better at something, or as you're progressing toward a goal, um, it doesn't just go, I have this goal, dot, 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 I've reached the goal. You get closer to the goal. Um, and if my goal is some sort of network structural property, if I'm, if I'm a network that's growing in a certain way, I have some goal that I like roughly want to like, look like, like when, when you have the pin up on the treadmill about this is what I want to look like. And you're running on the treadmill. If that's what the network is, is doing while it's growing, how do you know how close it is to that? Mm -hmm. And this is where, um, 
I started to get really, really interested in just like, well, how do you know how close anything is? Like, what is measurement? And uh, especially in the case of networks, if I have two networks, and I, or if I have like a, a, a suite of networks and I say, broadly, my goal is to end up there. I'm a growing yeah. network. I'm a dynamic network. Yes. I'm eventually going to approach that. Like, if I wanted to say I'm going to approach that, you can say, okay, cool. Like, are you there yet? Are you an inch away? Are you a foot away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 20 miles you're um, you're do, you're based now you're doing my job which is awesome so you're 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 pivoting from from the teleology to the paper that we'll be talking about it's all teleology yeah sure yeah, but yeah, i mean yeah. but you're yeah. you're uh taking us here so this is awesome so you should say you should say the uh precise title uh super clearly so we have it on record so the paper is called the paper is called network comparison and the within ensemble graph distance and where did you publish it this was in the Royal Society A, and they had a special issue on um, a generation of network science. Yeah, um, and I, and I mean, just to say, you don't need teleology to be interested in this. This is a fundamental problem. You run into it all the time. Whenever someone is generating synthetic data, it's an issue, and it's a. Lots of people have kind of proposed uh, metrics for it. It's generally, even if you have the same nodes, but different link structures, it's not trivial to answer. So so we we, we want to say, are two networks close to one another or not? That's the basic question, right? And I want to put a number on it. So I want to say they're yeah. five away, or they're 0.001 away. Yes. Or they're the exact same, so they are zero distance away. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the kind of uh, strategy? So uh, over the last like 20, actually probably even more years, everyone raised their hand all at once and they're like, oh, I have an idea. Yep. And so one natural idea is, okay, two networks are close to each other if their degree distributions are close to each other. Yes. So we have ma- ways of quantifying differences between distributions. Let's do that. Um, let's name it something distance in the in the bag check good um and someone else comes along and says okay well that's really unsophisticated because networks are more than just their degree distribution well, what if uh what if you actually want to know something about path lengths in the network or what if you want some like more interesting spectral properties like yep. this we know we have a lot of mathematics that tell us that this characterizes networks very well so we should be able to use that like leverage that mathematics to say well, if it characterizes it so well, like let's use it to quantify differences between networks. Mm-hmm. And then there's a bunch of very interesting um, techniques, very uh, advanced techniques, um, some more so than others that uh, were proposed over the last many years. And if you kind of look at where they're used, so practitioners will say, I want to just like, I collected this network data and I just want to know like how, how, close it is to like a network that I would expect. There's a whole world of null models that we can do for this, but a lot of people just use the the graph distance and say, well, yeah, it's pretty close. So we're all set. Yep. But why didn't they use the different, a different graph distance or why didn't they use Mm -hmm. all of them? And so we, we sort of fell into this space by realizing that it's, it's not the wild west, um, but it is, you can use whatever you want and you can justify it loosely. And um, we just thought, is there should be some sort of consolidation of a lot of this, not in a, this performs better sense. I think, I think there's a lot of work that's like, we outperform this, 
is lesser, sure, uglier algorithm uh, by this much, and so we're better, and so we're the, whatever. We just wanted an epistemic take on people use these tools. Is there a way to think about how to compare them in a non non judgmental way? Sure. And this was also at the time that we had built this software package to collect and store and uh, implement all of them. Mm-hmm. So we have this, this package called NetRD, which is in Python, that is the result of many people's labor during a collabathon um, that uh, consolidates a bunch of these tools into one location. So just so that it's clear to me, so what you're saying is you have many different metrics for network similarity, and now you put all of them in a software package. That's right. Cool. And as a side note, people often ask like, well, which one do you use if you're, if you're comparing two networks? And my response now, um, happily is I just use all of them because it's just, it's, it's like taking a photo of a really pretty flower from a lot of different angles. Like you get lots of the complexity of the relationship between these two graphs um, that each one sort of overlaps the other distance in a way. And it creates a bunch of, um, so having all of them is a useful tool, but even before that, like what, what you have all these distances, what, how is like a, what's a useful way to characterize all of them. Mm-hmm. And so this, um, so what we ended up doing, and I forget whose actual original, this was probably, um, uh, Laurent Hebert Dufresne, um, and a PhD student who works with him, Alexander Daniels, um, who reached out about the package and, and they were like, this is kind of interesting idea here because there's not really that, like if I generated a hundred Erdos Renyi networks and I took, uh, and in in one hand and I have a hundred Erdos Renyi networks in the other hand, and I just went across the row and compared the graph distance between all of them. Like what's the average distance that you would expect? Yes. Well, what if I, what if I, varied the density of these Erdos Renyi networks. So I would say, okay, well I have a hundred nodes and the probability that any of them connect is zero on the one hand. And then I have a hundred nodes and the probability that any connect is zero on the other hand. So I have two graphs, they're both empty graphs and I compare their graph distance. You'd expect that they're zero away from each other because they're the same graph. Yep. But as I start to increase the probability that any pair of nodes shares a link, you start to get some complexity in terms of the graphs that you'll end up seeing, or at least you will not, you will surely not have the same graph after a certain point. And this, I mean, just to kind of, if you're not used to thinking about this, I think it's worthwhile to say that this highlights exactly why this is such a hard problem, right? So if you have, if you have nodes where you know that it's the same node throughout then you can kind of do like a node-wise comparison and right. say like how similar is this node in the one network to the other network. But actually this is an even harder problem because you don't know that it's the, that it's the same nodes. You're not even guaranteed the same number of nodes. So like when you're, like so there's this kind of famous graph isomorphism problem where you kind of say, well, can I recognize a subgraph uh, somewhere in the graph? Like how where can I, where can I find... You know, like so. So basically, 
if if you let's say you had the same number of nodes, then you would have to say, well, which node <laughs> matches up right. in the one network to the node in the other network. And this is why this is the reason why when you do these kinds of comparisons, that's why you're talking about the distributions and the statistics because it's not combinatorically feasible or combinatorially. I'm not an average anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's not feasible to ma- like try all the different matching ups and see which one fits the best. So you have to kind of work in the statistics domain. I assume is that right? That's exactly right. Uh, uh, famously, it, it's going to take forever uh, if you try to yeah. reorganize your adjacency matrix to look the most like the other adjacency matrix, and then overlay the networks and count how many uh, edge entries are different. Um, that's a very, very challenging computational problem. And it also, in a sense, um, it might not be what we want even. So if, and I, I've, I hid this point so far, but but I'll get to it now. So, so one, the, the way we just start the paper is is basically just like an assertion that, um, uh, or we, we just define, uh, we were, I don't know if we're the first ones to do it this way, but we say a graph distance is a tool for comparing pairs of networks and it consists of a descriptor and a distance. Mm -hmm. So you need some sort of um, sufficient statistic of the network or some sort of, some sort of uh, statistical description or spectral description of the network um, with which you can, uh, if you have, if you have a pair of networks um, with which you can quantify the difference between them using a distance metric. Yep. Which of which there are, tons. Um, and so you have these two choices of like, okay, in th- if I want like the most, if I want to earnestly compare all of the interesting facets that differ in, in, in between two networks, what I would want is I would want the most informative descriptor possible. And what I would want is the most, uh, is the distance that most usefully is tuned to that descriptor. So if I'm dealing with a distribution of degree, I would probably want a sort of information theoretic tool to actually quantify the difference between those. So the distance sometimes reveals itself as the most useful one, depending on the descriptor that you have. So there's all these distances that have this, you can, you can rewrite them all as having this structure. They have a descriptor, they have a distance. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I was saying before there you can imagine a way of of characterizing a single graph distance measure by using the tools that we have from like random graph ensembles yep so these are these these models that will generate for you networks that have tunable specific properties so in the case of random erdos renyi networks this is what I was talking about before, where you have n nodes. So let's say you have 100 nodes, and there exists a probability p that any pair of nodes will be connected. So when p equals 1, you have a completely connected network. When p equals 0, you have a completely disconnected network. And if if I did this thing where I step from p equals 0 to p equals 0.1 to 0.2 to 0.3 all the way to 1.0, um, and I keep the number of nodes fixed. And I just say at each point, like click the button that'll spit out a, an example network and click the button again to spit out a second network, select a graph distance from my list of graph distances, measure that distance, 
record it, do it again a thousand times, move up to the next probability. So P equals 0.2 now. Mm-hmm. Sample thousands of networks, measure the distance between those thousands of networks. Eventually I get this picture of um, how I would expect the average distance between pairs of graphs sampled from a given ensemble with a given parameterization, um, how that curve would look. So you can kind of intuitively say, okay, let's stick with, with this erdos Renyi example. What do you expect if you were to make a distance? Where would you want, <laughs> what, what value of P would you want you, you the would distance want to be to, maximized? You, well, first of all, you, you would want it to be zero at one and zero okay. because the graphs are identical in those two. Okay. And basically, then let me think, because it's kind of like the entropy the entropy of the thing that it's, is it it's maximal at a half? So it it looks like the entropy curve, I would assume, right? That it's like zero at the end and then it goes so, up in the middle, but maybe there's some... No, I mean, yes, uh, in, that, in that ideologically, I agree with you. But I think part of the thing that we're discussing in this paper is that... Um, I mean, I, I have no idea. This is just like my. No, no, pre- there's no right answer to this, is what I'm trying to say. There, there's this, this, uh, these curves come in all sorts of shapes. Um, there are answers that are more palatable than others. There are some that are that must be true. So it really shouldn't yeah. be the case that that it's a, it's almost like you're, de- de- you're like defining a sanity check for exactly. the different exactly. That's a great way to put it. And and so okay, well then we use one graph distance. Let's swap it out for a different one. Does it look the same? Does it look different? What if we say, okay, Erdos Renyi example is too easy. We want a spicier one with maybe something that has known interesting structural quirks as you get uh, your parameter to a certain point. So you can say, um, so there's this this great example of a network uh, generating um, model that. Uh, uh, is in this building very famous, um, but it's this nonlinear preferential attachment network growth model, which yeah. is basically just there are n nodes in my system, or I'm going to have n nodes um, at every time step. A new node gets added to the network that has a certain number of links that it needs to find connections yeah. to, um, with some probability k to the alpha, where k is the degree of the nodes in the network that I could possibly connect to, and alpha is this sort of extent of preferential attachmentness by degree, uh, it, it assigns its links to those nodes. Yeah. So when we would alpha, call it like the, the Albert Barabashi, Barabashi Albert, something along those lines, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so when alpha is one, um, you create this, this scale free network that, um, famous early 2000s, 1999, yeah. um, network model. If alpha equals positive infinity, um, then the, every new node coming in wants so badly to connect to the most, uh, the highest degree node that you get this star like shape. Yep. If alpha equals negative infinity, you get this kind of like snake network that, <laughs> that every, every new node is trying to connect to the least connected node, which if, if each new node is only bringing one edge in, it creates this rope, basically this, this yeah, string yeah, yeah. kind of network. Sense. And so there, there's a range of yeah. different network topologies that this ensemble um, can spit out for you just based on varying this alpha parameter. And the thing that's uh, historically quite interesting about this network model 
is that we know a lot about what happens to networks that are grown uh, under this model mm-hmm. at certain points along this along this alpha spectrum. So when alpha equals one, it starts to get into this scale-free network um, regime. So you know that you're yes. going to generate yep. this, this special network. Um, after alpha equals two, then you start to get into this regime where you're going to make a bunch of star networks. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm imagining my within ensemble graph distance curve, so the average graph distance between pairs of nodes generated from the ensemble that has that parameterization mm-hmm. while I vary alpha. Yep. I can sort of say like, w- what are the milestones that I want it to like blip at? So I, like, I don't know what that blip maybe looks like. Maybe I, I want it to spike or maybe I want the average distance between preferential attachment networks where alpha equals one. Maybe I want that to be super high, but then kind of go down after, or maybe I want it to Mm -hmm. be increasing until you get to two and then do something. Um, So you can kind of preform some hypotheses about what your ideal graph distance, your tool that you're measuring and characterizing the networks in your life, what you want that to look like and what you want that to be able to pick up on. Um, And you, and we use these things, which are just like, like, uh, graph ensembles that are the bread and butter of a lot of um, like network science 101 yeah. courses. But it's just, but what you're doing, I suppose, like I said, this thing that is like a sanity check, but it's, it's also just a way to kind of, instead of just testing the method on a specific system, you're kind of saying here are some standard systems where you can compare methods and see how they conform to what, like it, you're. It's like a tool for building intuition around the different uh, metrics, essentially. And so, so it, exactly. And the goal related to that is like, what are we missing in the field right now in terms of the tools that we have access to? Yeah. There's this one. There's nice. one table in yeah. the paper that is. It is. Uh, we don't need the text of the paper because it's just the table that has everything. <laughs> um, nice. But it's just. Uh, it's on the on the columns. It's like. Uh, all the different distances we, we studied. And then on the rows, it's all of these interesting properties from the graph ensembles that we studied. And there's just these check boxes of does the yeah. within ensemble graph distance curve of this graph distance, pick up on the structural transition uh, when K equals one in, uh, in uh, uh, GN average K graph ensemble, or does it pick up on the, the watts Strogatz rewiring, um, but uh, but then let me let me then be the devil's advocate because you know like I care a lot about empirical data mm, and that makes one of us <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so so like what I what I would um, what I would want or what what I'm interested in is somehow also like that. You know, like these, like they're basically like the things I care about in networks, a lot of the models can't capture, right? Like it's like this thing of getting communities and getting like joint distributions of degree and clustering and like all kinds of Mm -hmm. crazy, crazy that we don't even have good models for. So like where, you know what I mean? That where the (laughs) the ensemble generation is like, we don't even know how to make the ensembles. So, so, so this is like, I'm not. Well, I'm not, can, can, I'm I, not, can I press you on this because it, it leads into a good yeah, yeah because study. maybe you are or um, yeah I mean I'm just yeah yeah, yeah. so so it, I, I was lying when I said I don't care about empirical I know data <laughs> um, 
I do. And I think so. So, uh, this paper was only just, uh, like Python, make me a network, making yeah. it, it a thousand times compare these distances. But throughout we were like, you can imagine how this would interface with real data, um, in a number of ways. Uh, one of them. So, so this paper, uh, is, is about the within ensemble graph distance. One might also imagine a between ensemble graph distance where you're not comparing the ostensibly same networks or the networks that are generated under the same process. Yeah. But instead you're comparing, this is still, this is still not empirical yet. Instead you're comparing ensemble one to ensemble two Mm -hmm. and graphs generated with maybe similar properties, but we know something structurally is different about them or we suspect that there is because Mm -hmm. the, the generating process is different. And so we can say on average, like, the distance between a Erdős Renyi network and a Barbashi Albert network with overall similar like density or or number of links, number of nodes, on average, the distance is this. Yeah. And so what we see as we change, as we vary different properties of those ensembles, we can kind of see what's contributing to uh, furthering out or closening up the distances between these pairs of nodes, mm-hmm. uh, pairs of graphs. If you are imagining a between ensemble graph distance, uh, but the ensemble is the uh, ensemble of brains that nature has made of humans that we can record with functional yeah, yeah, imaging. Yeah. So there's this there are data sets where it's it's as if you have a random graph ensemble. That's amazing. Yes. It's it's this like nature has created brains. Humans uh, create tools to make time series of the brain's activity from which we then reconstruct networks of those brains. So we have some maybe second order uh, access arguably to what that brain might look like. That is in, uh, if we do this for lots of humans, we have essentially yeah, yeah. a sample from an ensemble of the way that nature makes brains that we can yeah. measure. And, and for some networks, it would also be a reasonable thing to say that even if you have temporal data, that is like a kind of a self reproducing ensemble of examples of the network and so on. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. And you could even, I could even think of a kind of perturbation. Like even if you only had one uh, network, you could have like a perturbation ish uh, thing working, right. You can do like a little bit of re- like shuffling a little bit away from something like that. You did this already? No. <laughs> um, so so I, I was, I was cheering um, because this I think is a is a motivation for it's a motivation for future work. Um, the, I mentioned that the the source of all of these graph distances being loaded into this one um, net RD Python package was that we held an event at Northeastern a couple of years ago called a Collabathon. Which Such is a where, great title, it, much yeah, better it, than a hack. It, like it, I want to, I'm not sure I want to go yeah, to a hackathon, exactly. but Collabathon, yeah, a lot better. Yeah, nice. Where, where we, we came together to touch a little bit on i mean it, it, in retrospect it's very easy to ascribe goal directedness to uh, <laughs> data um there was a loose set of reasons why we all got together to implement um techniques for graph distances but also techniques for network reconstruction from time series data so that's that's a little bit how the brain example comes in is that mm-hmm. there's a lot of in the same way that there are techniques for comparing networks there's a ton of techniques for 
generating networks from time series data where you suspect there's some network structure underneath. Um, I won't get into that too much, but, but the reason I was cheering when you were talking about this perturbation is that, um, on Monday, today is July 14th on Monday, there is going to be the second collabathon. Ah, and this time we're back with a vengeance (laughs) this time. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm, sort of soliciting ideas here because I, yeah, I yeah. love uh, um, uh, feedback and also just ideas on techniques. There's a bunch of ways to perturb a network, to change the edges around in a network. So if I say randomly rewire this network, yeah, you might say, I'm going to pick a random node and I'm going to pick a random edge of its of that node and I'm going to randomly put it onto another random node in this network. But I mean, all of this reminds me a little bit of uh, there's... Like uh, down the street is uh, Dima Kriokov. Down the hall. Down, down the hall. In the old days, he was in like in the yeah, physics yeah. building. I've, I'm, I'm, uh, it's been a while since yeah. I was here. But he wrote some papers many years ago about something called Decay Series. The Decay Series, yeah. Yeah. And and like I think those papers have a problem that they're kind of stuck in some minima and he's not exploring the whole space. But in a way, like there's some of the ideas there that could be relevant to explore here for the perturbations. Um, totally. It, it's fun having this conversation because it's a little bit like a, like a psychic. Sometimes <laughs> you're just like, you're like, here's this thing that you have up on your computer. Um, no, but so, so, so to get quick to the DK series, yeah. the DK series is a wonderful object. Yeah. We um, should describe what it is. I'm it, sorry. It is a, uh, um, you can think of it as like the zero K, the one K, the two K, the three K series, all the way up to the d uh or or d can equal um n uh but it's it is a a way of describing iteratively more uh information about motifs of size d in your network so what what you what a um like the 2k series sorry the, the 1k series um describes the number of nodes of degree k so the degree distribution Exactly. So, so like in the in the zero k, it you create like an average Randian network right. with the same number of nodes and edges. And then in k equals one, you preserve degree distribution. K equals two, you preserve the joint degree distribution. Yeah, and triangles, right? Or um, anyway, yeah, probably the joint degree. Distribution. And then yeah, the three k is triangles and open triangles. Four yeah. k, you have six different motifs. Five k, yeah. there's like twenty five motifs. And, and the minima issue that I brought up, that I'm not sure is there. It could have been many years since I've read it, but when I when I read it, the, like the thing that popped in my mind is that they get there by shuff, like by shuffling, and they basically they say like we get we get stuck, and I just had a hunch without no, like Dima's like a, a serious guy, so I'm I'm afraid to go on the record for <laughs> like, but my sense was that they maybe basically like they. They say that the space gets very small very quickly, and but I think it's maybe because like they they can't get there by shuffling. That's my hunch, but I'm not I'm not sure. And and I and I haven't checked. Like it's just it was like a, a casual reading. So I'm fascinated in what in what that implies. So so I'm going iteratively more iteratively higher k. Basically, what I want to do is I want to reproduce a network that has the same. Uh, DK series as my empirical network. And and the motivation for doing this is that I think having this DK series means that I can like sample from it. I can I can 
do a lot of things. I'm basically modeling my network very, very well yes. in a sense overfitting after a certain point, because once you get to the 5k, 6k, 7k, if you're searching the space of networks that might uh, have the same DK, might have the same 7k series as the network that I have in my data set, there's just not that many of those networks. Yes. And so you don't need to go super high to get all of the bang for your DK series buck. You can go to the three or 4k and then the problem. Uh, so, so that's the sort of draw theoretically is that you characterize a lot of your network. The problem implementation wise is that like, where are those networks and how mm-hmm. do you find them via yeah. some sort of rewiring tool? Um, as far as I know, that's still a problem. But if, if we step back for a second and think about the, this very beautiful object, this DK series, and earlier we were talking about how a lot of the motivation for even uh, if I sit down on my computer, I'm like, I'm going to write a graph distance paper. Like, what's the second paragraph in that paper? Second paragraph is like, there's this one property that's super useful because it characterizes a lot of information about this network. And that's why we use it in our graph distance. So my former classmate, Leo Torres, has this really nice graph distance measure that uses the um, eigenvalues of the non-backtracking matrix because mm-hmm. there's a lot of mathematical uh, 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 sort of motivation for using that in that it characterizes um, uh, some very well uh, up to isomorphism kind of proof of, yes. of the network. Um, and that is a very good motivation for introducing a new graph distance. Here we have this, this very, this similarly informative, um, in fact, like provably like fully informative um, object that describes the networks that, that we may work with. Um, all I'm trying to say is that that would be a very good graph distance measure <laughs> and that uh, it's a, uh, we, we, we actually, we, we wrote it up and um, it, it is, it's like, it has a nice, has nice properties. It has nice, like rationale for using it. There's a little bit of an issue with uh, computing it. Cause these things are very, um, uh, it's hard to, to have your computer spit out the DK series of a network. Cause there's lots of different ways that D and K can combine. Exactly. That it it's, yeah, it's, it's hard. Like there are so many permutations and it's, it's hard to, or like combinations of nodes and edges and it's hard to get to them. It's hard to right. somehow, um, it's hard to find them, but, it, but, uh, but I have to say we're, <laughs> with this, the longest podcast, uh, it's, it's so much fun to talk. And I wish this was like a Lex Friedman, uh, format where we could just <laughs> do it. Uh, we just do it. Yeah. have to, uh, we, we would just do eight hours. Yeah. Um, that'd be, that'd be amazing. But I, but I have to wrap it up. I have to, um, <laughs> I have to keep going. I have like, a <laughs> I have more things, but I, I really enjoyed it. There's so many things we didn't talk about. We didn't get to the bottom of the teleology. We didn't find the goal. Uh, we didn't find the goal. We, you, uh, you know, like you mentioned your advisors a little bit. You've done with the like uh, listeners will maybe know that Alex Vespignani and Sam Scarpino are also uh, very good at other things than teleology, and and so and with. Uh, them a lot of the time at least you've done amazing work also on covid modeling you have a ton of interesting papers there that we could have talked about so there was so much that we didn't get to but i think we got to uh we, we got to some super exciting places it was enormous um uh, 
pleasure to chat. I That's really great. enjoyed it. I love this. This is yeah. yeah. So so um, let's for sure do some more chatting offline. Let's yeah, record yeah. another episode uh, in a couple of years about yeah. all the stuff we didn't talk about. But um, I hope it's okay. We wrap it up. It's great. Thank um, you so much. Thank you for being much. on. This is it awesome. was it was amazing. Thank yeah. yeah. So thank you for the for a great talk. Um, take care and uh, yeah, we'll talk more. <laughs> talk more later. The podcast was recorded, produced, and edited by me. It's partially funded by the Willem Foundation and the Technical University of Denmark. The awesome music is by Waylon Thornton and it can be found at the Free Music Archive. At least that's where I found it. And there's also a little bit of music by me. Thanks for listening.